This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. I don't know if this was unique to my school or something, but we also sang New York, New York. And we sang it in a way that I really, like, I, I guess I must have thought as a kid that I was actually the official anthem of either New York State or New York City, <laughs> as, as opposed to a Broadway show tune. If, if you'll allow me, I remember, if I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. It's up to you, New York, New York. And it was like kind of shocking that we were taught that as kids. Where did you grow up? is a question we're all asked, a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us, what happened to them there, before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke, and this is Your Hometown. This is the story of an inquiring mind who happens to be a journalist. Sul Chan is the new editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune. But before his move to Austin, and before his previous roles at the LA Times, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, he was a boy growing up in an immigrant family in the outer boroughs of New York City, where his father drove a taxi cab. Both his parents had seen a lot in their lives, but they said little. Their New York was the New York of work, of their community, and of striving for a quiet, peaceful place to live, which ended up being in Queens. Yet when you meet Sewell, it's surprising that he came from such a quiet place because he's so engaged with the world, with history, with how people live, and how things work. And I was curious to know what the windows and doors were from where his family lived in New York to the larger world he would come to inhabit and inform with his earnest, hardworking, even dogged nature. And could he bring home with him where he was going? I should say that he and I were college classmates, but we didn't actually get to know each other until this interview. We started with what Sewell, a majorly journalist, does best, establishing context. When I think about my first few years, I, th I think about a few things. I think about how my parents were relatively uh, recent immigrants to the United States. They actually met in New York Chinatown. They got married there. And uh, I was their, the first and only child from, from that marriage. I have two older half-sisters uh, from an earlier marriage of my mom's. And uh, my dad was actually an undocumented immigrant. He had left mainland uh, China during a period of intense uh, turmoil uh, mm -hmm. uh, in 1961 and then left Hong Kong a decade later for the United States. So I was really actually the first citizen in my family, merely by virtue of having been born in the United States. <laughs> This is Eyewitness News with Larry Kane and the Eyewitness News Team, Thursday, July 14th, 1977. Good evening, I'm Larry Kane. Our big story on Eyewitness News is the live picture you see directly behind me. Suddenly, light and brightness out of a 24-hour darkness. The bright patchwork of the second night of the great New York energy crisis of 1977. At this moment, more than 90% of the electrical power has been restored in greater New York. Con Ed hopes for full restoration by midnight tonight, but thousands are still without power. The, the stories that I've heard about my early years, I mean, first of all, I was born in the summer of 77. And New Yorkers will know that as the summer of Sam, the summer of, uh, of the great New York City blackout. 
and uh, my mom tells stories about uh, how arduous it was when the power went out. We were living on the 10th floor, apartment 10E of a building at 45 Rucker Street in the LaGuardia houses. I love that I was born and uh, that I, I spent my first few years in life in a development named for Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia. And my mom just describes having to schlep up and down, you know, those 10 flights of stairs, um, uh, gathering water, I, gather, I guess, from a fire hydrant, and just the scorching heat. It was a very, very kind of humid, miserable summer. And I was a fat baby. I was nine pounds at birth. Now that I'm an adult, I know that I, I that, that was a very um, difficult period for New York City as a whole. And so I think about my first few years on this earth as really being, you know, years in which my, my working class Chinese family was trying to get, um, was trying to make its place and find its way uh, in America only a few years after having arrived. And isn't it interesting, Sewell, how our origin story, it depends on other people's memories. You have to fill it in based on talking to other people and gathering information. And that starts with our parents often. What would you find yourself kind of being curious about them and where they came from? When I was maybe six or seven, around that time, we bought a book from, it must have been B. Dalton or one of those early chain bookstores. And I remember it was a book called My Family Tree. And I was so intrigued by history, but I was limited by the fact that my Chinese is very rudimentary. Um, I really grew up in a split language household. My mom spoke to me in English, having gone to um, school in Hong Kong, but my dad's English uh, was and remains very minimal. So my parents would usually speak to me in Cantonese, but I got into the habit of responding to them in English. So there was really a, there, you know, was really a language barrier in what I could understand. Anyway, this family tree book encouraged you to to kind of write in the names of your ancestors and to write about special memories. And I remember asking my parents as I tried to fill in literally these blanks, and there were just a lot of holes that, and obstacles that we ran into. Um, my dad doesn't even really have a fixed birth date. Um, officially, he was born in November of 1942, but it's a date that he somewhat chose out of thin air, and even more striking, uh, the date was uh, several years after when we believe he was really born, which was more like 1939. So even, you know, very, very simple facts, you know, seemed somehow elusive. And I think that did, you know, stimulate my curiosity much later in life when I was in my 30s. I arranged a visit to both of my parents' uh, home villages in Guangdong in southern China. But really, as a child, it remained somewhat mysterious to me. I also only knew one side of my family. Uh, my mom's nuclear family had immigrated to the United States, uh, starting with her. Her dad was the original migrant coming as a so-called paper son in the mm -hmm. 1920s during the Chinese exclusion era. He was a laundryman in Boston. Um, and the rest of my mom's nuclear family, except my mom, came in the late 1950s. Uh, from Hong Kong. My mom was left behind for a variety of complicated reasons and only rejoined her family in 1970. So I, I did get to know my mom's family a little bit, but not so much my dad's. And the truth is I grew up in a, in a family that did not um, really prize kind of oral storytelling or uh, the telling of kind of family stories. I think uh, the milieu was one in which, you know, the, the determination was really to look, at, look ahead. Like, we're in America now, we're gonna look forward. It's such a common immigrant story. Um, it, there, there's sadness to it too, though. I think a lot of people, I read about people who left Europe or fled pogroms or, or mm -hmm. even worse, and and hearing about their descendants, really never knowing about what their what their early what their ancestors' early lives were like. Uh, I, I'm not saying my situation is so dramatic, but but my parents really did not like talking about the past very much. You know, having come to America, having having really you know moved across so many time zones, 
um, they really wanted to just focus on life in the United States. And I can understand that, but it meant that it took a lot longer for me to start to piece together uh, uh, the history. And that's still a process that's still uh, going on today in some ways. How did you navigate those silences as a boy? Did you find yourself frustrated? I found myself a little bit frustrated. I mean, I'm a pretty curious person. I definitely pressed my parents for as much information as I could get. They were not particularly secretive people. They showed me any documents I wanted to look at. I was able to kind of get the dates, but what I wasn't able to get, and, and never really have, I'm very blessed that my parents are still alive, but they're kind of not natural storytellers, and they don't think of their lives in terms of historical time. And of course, that's appropriate. Most normal people don't think about their lives in historical time. But um, I have, and I had, uh, he passed away, unfortunately, I had an, adopt an adoptive uncle who uh, served in Vietnam, and he had come to the U.S. really as a teenager and had to kind of learn English from scratch in, you know, public schools in New York City. Uh, he never went to college, but about only seven years after emigrating from Asia, he was drafted and sent to Asia. Um, and he had some, you know, that was just very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. He, he, my, my uncle used to tell me that it was in the army that he learned to become American. He really hadn't had that kind of socializing experience in schools because he came, you know, relatively late as a teenager. But it was really in the army that he, you know, and in Vietnam of all places that he learned how to be American, which I've always found a really surprising story. And what for you, Sul, was the spark that created this interest in yourself for knowing the vertical story of something, you know, the depth, the history? Where did that come from in you? Well, I guess I've always been interested in history as a kid. I mean, uh, it was my favorite subject in school. Um, I, in some ways, uh, I, I had a very, um, I don't want to say, pa patriotic might be too strong, but given that I grew up in, you know, the outer boroughs of New York, and given that there were, you know, I went to schools with a lot of immigrant kids, a lot of uh, what we would now define as, as children of color, mm -hmm. uh, it was still a very American childhood in many ways. I went to public schools in Queens, uh, two elementary schools, one for kindergarten through second grade and the other from fourth through sixth grade. And we were really, um, we were really, it was really encouraged to, to be American. You know, we sang anthems, I feel endlessly in, in, in hindsight, probably in real life, it was more like every week or so. But still, it was a lot of singing, um, not just the Star Spangled Banner, but also America the Beautiful, sometimes my country tis of thee. And I don't know if this was unique to my school or something, but we also sang New York, New York. And we sang it in a way that I really like, I, I guess I must have thought as a kid that it was actually the official anthem of either New York State or New York City. <laughs> At, as opposed to a Broadway show tune. Canada, but, right. But it's a really, really, it was just a very funny memory that like, you know, this kind of song that really speaks to the aspirations of New Yorkers uh, mm -hmm. um, was sung by these school children. I, if, if you'll allow me, I remember, if I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. It's up to you, New York, New York. And it was like a kind of shocking that we were taught that as kids. It's That's fantastic because usually it's either the Frank Sinatra version or Liza Minnelli. But you had your, it sounds like you had your sort of Sousa, a Sousa version of it or something. <laughs> that's right. It was, that's right. It was a, it was right. Sung by these kids, it was rather slow and stately. That's exactly right. So, you know, I think as a kid, I was fascinated by, by America. I, I read like every book I could 
you know, grab my hands on by, by, by first grade. I think I had memorized all the presidents, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, could recite them backwards and forwards. I, I can't really do that now as an adult. I actually have to think about it and attach the president to the era and what was going on. But, you know, in the way that six-year-olds uh, uh, just kind of memorize things. I mean, yes. for, for me, his, these historical trivia points were, you know, I guess my version of baseball cards. The news. You grew up in six houses across three boroughs in New York City. Can you just take us on a quick tour of where you lived as you moved around? Uh, my first few years were spent um, uh, on the Lower East Side, Rutgers Street, uh, right off the, uh, the East Broadway station on, on the F train. And uh, when I was around three, my parents bought a house that they had scrimped and saved to, uh, they really wanted to get on the, on the home ownership ladder, um, which I think was actually financially a very prescient decision in the long run. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot about how many New Yorkers, you know, who in the 70s had the foresight to kind of at least, you know, start getting, start building assets through home ownership, it really helped them later on. And I think that's very much true for my family and my parents who never earned very much. So when I was, uh, when I was a toddler, my parents uh, moved us to uh, Sheepshead Bay. We lived on East 24th Street, near, right near Avenue X, I think. And uh, it was actually a two-family house, so I think we must have had tenants of some kind. Um, after about a couple years there, uh, and just, just before I entered kindergarten, my parents moved us to uh, Bayside, Queens, because they had heard that the school district was quite good. And um, so for several years, we lived in a house at 42nd Avenue, um, uh, kind of not far from Northern Boulevard. Um, after about three years there, uh, my family moved to a house on 226th Street um, in Bayside. Uh, and then after a few years there, we lived in a temporary home, I think in Fresh Meadows, Queens, for a few months. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to a, a house on 64th Avenue. And my parents ended up staying in that house for about uh, 14 years. So when you think of home, do you think of all of New York as your home? Or do you think of sort of specific places? H- how do you think of home, given all that movement? Yeah, that really is such a profound question, Kevin. I, I guess I feel that New York City is home. But to say that... Um, seems to me problematic because there's so much of New York City, of course, that I've never seen. Um, I, I read about those who traverse, who've tried to traverse every block and every square mile. And I mean, if I, if I guess if I had like a lot of time off, I would attempt that. Um, but there are still places that I discover. You know, I've only been to the Arthur Avenue market once. I've only been to um, uh, Sailor Snug Harbor in Staten Island once. I've only been to the Rockaways once. There's so much of New York that you could spend a li- you know you could spend a lifetime in the city, uh, as with London, as with so many other global cities, and really, really only see a small corner of it.
your kid, you're moving around. And so what would you do to orient yourself and discover this new place that you were in and make it feel like your new home? Well, I was a pretty indoors kind of kid and pretty bookish. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know how to ride a bike when I was little and, and my parents were pretty busy working. And so, you know, I, I, did, do, I did do quite a bit of walking. Uh, I really kind of grew up in the library, honestly. It's such a nerdy answer, but the no, no. E- the East Flushing branch of the New York Public Library and then the Bayside branch of the New York Public Library really were kind of my homes away from home. And then later on, um, the Central Library, um, the Queen Central Library on Merrick Boulevard in Jamaica, Queens. So I think, you know, those were really spaces that were for me very sacred and very special. You know, places where I just could gorge myself in books and sit in the, you know, aisles between the shelves and you know, read fiction, read children's fiction at first, and then and then more um, more adult fiction. I remember being, mm-hmm. especially by the time I got to middle school, there were just so many subjects to be exposed to. Um, but even earlier than that, I remember like writing a kind of extra credit paper in fourth grade about the French Revolution for reasons <laughs> I don't really understand. Um, maybe the maybe the only fourth grade paper ever written on the fourth French Revolution ever. You know, I feel partly because my parents were not um, highly educated or, or intellectuals, I feel that I actually had a very um, kind of free-roaming childhood intellectually. I was really most interested in history. I remember reading books about China, reading books about the American West, um, uh, reading books about eventually American and European history. I just had pretty broad interests. And, you know, I never really left, I don't think, I never really went to summer camp, so I had never left New York for more than perhaps three days at a time until I went to Harvard as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really, um, you know, I, I kind of learned both my neighbor, my neighborhood or my city rather, and the world through reading. Through reading. And, and turning sort of that gaze inside to your home, what were the rhythms of your house and sort of you in, the, in this mix? Yeah, uh, well, I had a complicated family situation. Um, my two ho- uh, older half-sisters are eight and ten years older, and okay. uh, uh, our, our, the middle child, my, sis- my sister who's eight years older, her name's Nora, and she's uh, severely disabled as, uh, as a result of, uh, of um, meningitis in infancy uh, back in Hong Kong. And uh, she uh, suffers from mental retardation uh, and also some other uh, pretty serious physical impediments, including uh, she's legally blind and she walks with a very uh, uh, troubled uh, gait. And so, you know, needs help with mobility and really needs 24-7 care. So in many ways, Nora was kind of the fulcrum around which our family operated in the sense that she had the most needs. And, um, you know, cognitively, she's, she's kind of at a, at a uh, six-year-old or first-grade level. And so I think uh, it was actually very fun when I was a little kid playing with her because, you know, there was a, very much a childlike and very innocent and very, uh, very sweet uh, aspect of her personality in general, for which we're very lucky. Um, but certainly after, I guess, first grade, as I started to cognitively, uh, um, you know, move forward, uh, you know, it became, it, very, it became quite clear that, you know, Nora had the most profound needs of all of us. So I think that was a really important part of the family dynamic. Um, uh, it was not the most happy family. Um, you know, my parents were not, not a great match for each other. Um, I think they tried to create a safe home environment for me. I think they were both very caring. There was no, um, uh, there was no significant drama. There were no 
infidelity or, or financial shenanigans or, or um, uh, anything like that. But, but just, you know, they, theirs was really a very working class marriage of people who had been kind of, you know, who had come to the U.S. as really adults. And, and so in some ways, I think uh, theirs was a bit of a marriage of convenience. You know, my mom really wanted uh, uh, some help, you know, raising, uh, raising her two kids. My dad obviously uh, wanted and, and uh, needed, you know, um, legalization and regularization of his status so that he could stay in the country. So, you know, I don't think that that means that, you know, they didn't want me, but, uh, but I was aware from a pretty early age that, uh, you know, it wasn't a perfect environment, and it, but it was one that we had to make the best of. clear sense of um, how to kind of be an emotional nurturer. Um, the context, though, is that his own father had died when he was um, 15 years old uh, in the 1950s in China. And uh, my dad was really, as the oldest of seven and then later six uh, children, he had a, a younger brother who died, in, who died in childhood. My dad had to really help, you know, provide for his widowed mother and uh, and the rest of his family. So he had a very, very hard life. And as I came to appreciate that as I got older, it helped me to recognize and put in context, you know, that, that he had had a very, very difficult life and that he didn't really defined providing for the family as being very much about materially providing, which he did with, with great diligence and and great uh, steadfastness. He was a very, very he was a very, very hard worker. Uh, was a restaurant worker for many years, and then a cab driver. But you know, we were we were living in, I guess, in a in a part of New York that was a little bit more bourgeois, probably more bourgeois than we were. Probably, in, I think, in hindsight, probably among the the lowest income or the or the most recently arrived um, Americans in these neighborhoods. Later on, Eastern Queens has become, you know, Northeastern Queens has become very, very Asian American. But when yeah. we first moved there in the early 1980s, we were probably among the earliest Asian families. You know, we didn't really socialize that much around us. It was it was somewhat isolating, Kevin. your father drew drove a cab if there wasn't a dialogue what were you just picking up from watching it well I think first of all was the sheer number of hours you know my dad um, I was very lucky that my dad actually drove me to school in the morning for six years in middle school and high school and I remember feeling very kind of um, bashful and kind of even embarrassed when he would pull up near our school because I literally I was going to school in a yellow cab and when you're a teenager or an adolescent you feel very self-conscious about being different in any way and uh, in hindsight I feel very proud that my dad was a cab driver and I had the luxury of free transportation to school in the morning um, but but at the time of course I was, I was quite immature and, and didn't see uh, didn't 
didn't see how, how, how proud I, I should be of him. What was it like in the car with him? Very quiet, very quiet. He didn't like to speak a lot, and often I was still, you know, slumbering or, or catching up on schoolwork or whatever in the, in the car. I remember actually being involved in not accidents, but there was one time when very, very icy road conditions and the car skidded and swerved around. There was another time when I was in high school where I was driving back to New York City, to, driving back to Queens with him, and um, the, something under the hood caught on fire because this, it had been really, really overheated. And, you know, my dad would talk a lot about car problems, actually, about the costs of vehicular maintenance, about the costs of of, uh, of leasing a medallion at first uh, or, or making the payments on his medallion. So it was a hard life, you know, and I, I knew the hours were very, very long. It was my 12 hour days were very common. You know, my dad and I would leave at 6.30 in the morning. He'd start his shift in New York City, right, in Manhattan around 7.30. He often really wasn't home until about 8 p.m. So he was working pretty much 12 hours straight. And uh, where he took his breaks, how he even used the bathroom, uh, um, you know, how he managed to navigate his way around the city in this era before GPS. Uh, all of that I've had to kind of piece together over the years. And also, Sewell, when we were growing up, it wasn't the easiest time in New York. And I, I looked this up, it was, uh, astonishingly, 1993, there were 44 livery drivers and four taxi drivers who lost their lives driving driving in the city. That's really great. And I actually had forgotten a little bit about that, but you're, you're entirely right. There was one point where the New York Times, I remember, did a whole investigation into the yellow cab industry and, the, and including the black car livery drivers who had the worst of it, as you say. And uh, I think it called the industry a sweatshop on wheels. And I think I think of that term now in the context of Uber and Lyft and all these other um, uh, app-based or, uh, or uh, gig economy jobs and how precarious they are and how it's often the immigrants or people of color who, who end up in those jobs. Did you ever kind of see him come home shaken by something? Um, I do remember, like, look, look, both of my parents were robbed uh, at either gunpoint or knife point several oh times wow. in the 1970s and 80s. I don't really recall, especially when we lived in the Lower East Side, it happened repeatedly. And uh, it was very, very scary for them. Um, I myself was mugged twice, but, you know, not, I don't really remember a weapon in either occasion. Both were in the early 90s, and it was essentially kind of larger, rougher, multiple <laughs> kids, you know, just kind of, you know, pushing me against a wall or something and taking my wallet. So, you know, you just kind of assumed, I mean, I remember saying in high school even that that was just, you know, a sign of, you know, kind of um, a rite of passage in New York City. Now, I don't think I'd be so blasé about it now. I think clearly if you, you know, if you had a kid, having them, you know, be the victim of an armed robbery is pretty damn serious. But yeah. I will say that in the early 90s, there was really a sense of uncertainty about New York. You know, there was still a lot of crime. Uh, the neighborhoods were very variable. I mean, I used to think that it was very boring to live in Queens. But when I think about my parents and what they had been through in the Lower East Side, I, I could see why they wanted to get as far away from that as possible. How would you say your parents' New York was different from your New York? Well, that's a great question. My parents had, you know, hard, complex lives in Asia before coming to the U.S. Uh, both of them were born during World War II. Uh, uh, both of them uh, have d memories, largely dim ones, of, of kind of Jap the Japanese occupation and of some kind of military conflict. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of kids born during the war, they kind of remember 
soldiers moving around. You know, I don't, nothing more dramatic or terrifying than that. So both of my parents have experienced a lot before they were, they were really adults. Now that my parents are around 80, they of course have spent the majority of their lives in New York. I don't think they are sentimental about it. I think they just see it as the place that they happen to live. They are aware that it's America's most populous city. Um, they are aware of its tremendous diversity, but they really live kind of within the Chinese immigrant enclave. You know, most of their uh, social contacts, their friendships, uh, people they deal with are, are Chinese American uh, in Queens, uh, in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, uh, you know, in the Chinatown Lower East Side area of Manhattan. You know, their worlds are really kind of circumscribed by, by Chineseness. You're the first generation in your family having a childhood in the U.S. And so your needs, your aspirations were going to be different than theirs. And I was just going to ask you, how did you meet the city and make New York your own and, and a New York that was different from theirs? Wow, that's so perceptive, Kevin. I mean, I think about the recency of my of my presence in America, how my family had only been here, you know, six or seven years before I was born. And in many ways, my childhood was really in this kind of you know, third space that wasn't Asia, but wasn't exactly America either. How did I make New York my own? Well, I was a very determined kid in many ways. I think I did, I, not only did I insist on going to the libraries because I really loved them, I loved school in general. Um, I liked being at school. Um, I didn't like being at home that much. I always wanted to kind of go outside. I was a bored child. I got, I got mm -hmm. bored pretty easily, um, um, <laughs> quite easily. I do remember discovering the Met, and that was a very the Metropolitan Museum, and that was a very very consequential discovery for me. It ended How did you discover it? Well, I think the first time around, I just actually I have a dim memory that the first time I went, I didn't understand quite how large the Met was, and made my way into that gift shop that's on the northern side of the mm -hmm. Met, and then I think I I didn't really quite understand that the museum <laughs> actually had many many more layers and levels beyond that. It's so cliche, but I really felt I traveled the world through the Met's galleries and could see kind of, you know, human history and even human accomplishment kind of come alive and the, the way the art was periodized. I really loved every aspect of it. You know, eventually, I, I eventually, I, and I, I haven't thought about this in many years, but I started pushing to do cultural things. I remember um, I really wanted to go to a Broadway show and I remember the first one I ever went to was Me and My Girl. Everything free and easy you know well play What up to make your way down I definitely did stuff, you know, on my own pretty early on. I think for me and my girl, I might have gone with my mom. But later on, my first opera whatever was Aida, and I went on my own. I was probably... Really? In, at that point, probably... Ninth or tenth grade. Thinking about you going into these into these cultural spaces in New York and taking the train, I guess, or going wh wh however you wanted to get there, 
and your parents letting you, did you feel like you were almost a bit of a mystery to them? Yeah, I think there was that sense of mystery, frankly. Um, and maybe it exists a little bit to this day. I think my parents always considered me perhaps a little bit extreme. I loved staying up to read. I was a very intense reader. Um, it was probably a little bit hard as a child to please. I'm a bit picky. It can be a little bit ornery. Um, I don't think I was difficult. I don't think I, you know, threw tantrums or anything. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I was, I was on a somewhat parallel track to them, and uh, and it, you know, it's taken really you know, a lot of my life to try to reconcile that. You know, my parents mm -hmm. definitely, you know, had very, very kind of working class aspirations. They, I, I do believe they wanted me to go to college. I think that was important to them, but they had no real conception of what college was. They didn't know anyone who had gone to a university. They were not friends with lawyers or doctors or engineers. So my childhood was very different from that of, say, uh, other Chinese Americans, Taiwanese Americans, et cetera, who, who's, uh, who, you know, whose parents came, or who's the generation that came post-65, as scientists, engineers, graduate students, medical students, et cetera. My, my Chinese world was really very, very, very far from that. So there were really profound kind of class differences within the Chinese community that I, that I felt because I, as, especially as I got older and started making other um, Asian American friends, I could see that a lot of them came from, from very professional families and families that really valued education, learning, test taking. And I think I probably took some cues from that. In some ways, though, it was actually a real blessing because they didn't burden me with these, you know, tiger, what we would later call tiger mom expectations of, you know, very, very overbearing, really very, very rigid, structured childhoods. You know, I, I think that can be unhealthy, too. And I didn't really have that. The pressure, I think, was really kind of, you know, coming from within. <laughs> Hunter College High School is one of uh, the cities, for those who don't know, one of its most prestigious public schools. And it has a program where you can basically go all the way through middle school and high school. It's on 94th and Madison, so it's right there on the Upper East Side, right? And you're coming from the edges of Queens, as you described. Why you? I do remember that I was the only person from my elementary school that year to, to get into Hunter. And there were some, uh, some other students, two girls in particular, who I really looked up to and really uh, uh, kind of saw as like, you know, the best kids in our class. And I was very, very surprised they hadn't gotten in. Um, uh, and I was also a little bit sad because, you know, I did end up going, but there was no one really from my elementary school to, to go with me, to share that journey with me. How big a jump was it from the elementary schools you'd gone to to Hunter? A big jump. I felt that the academics were more challenging, full stop. Um, I felt much more stimulated. I felt um, challenged. I remember taking homework really seriously, I remember, which I'd always done, but I remember that the amount of homework increased. And I remember that, um, you know, assessments in terms of quizzes and tests seemed more frequent and more mm -hmm. difficult. I didn't feel quite as well prepared as some of the um, Manhattan kids or, or kids who had gone to better schools were. Um, so I, I remember it, it was a very, very tough environment. My seventh grade year was actually a very unhappy year. Uh, I cried a lot. I think I was lonely going to, to school in Manhattan. I missed the, the kind of friends that I had had in elementary school. In hindsight, I wish I had just bothered to, I wish I had making the effort to stay in touch with them. I didn't at the mm -hmm. time, which I regret. Um, but it was a really, really hard year. So hard that my mom asked if I wanted to leave Hunter and go to a local junior high school. 
and um, I'm glad she offered, but I really, looking back, I just had a very clear sense that, you know, no, as hard as this is, it's a really good school, and I'm going to benefit if I, if I stay, and indeed, it did get, get much, much better um, starting in eighth grade and, and beyond. Where did you find your own space, and where did you fit in? Well, that's a very, that's a really deep question. Um, I, it was only after I got into um, Hunter College High School and being in an environment where academic um, motivation and curiosity were really encouraged that I started to feel, you know, a little bit more in my skin. Um, and so that really, you know, that took quite a while. Uh, the, the, the happy converse of that is that I found adolescents generally actually quite happy because I went to a, a very uh, open, tolerant, uh, intense, intellectually oriented magnet school um, where being a nerd was really rewarded and I actually found that incredibly um, stimulating and really nourishing. Um, and I feel very lucky about that because, you know, a lot of my friends, especially who are, uh, who are uh, queer, gay, lesbian, uh, as I am, uh, did not often grow up in, in suburban environments where high school was a very, very stultifying experience. So for me, elementary school was a little more stultifying and I became happier in middle school and high school. I mean, I think I, I understood pretty early on that, you know, a lot of, you know, folks were very vulnerable and needed a lot of help. And, and that's had a profound uh, effect on me. I guess the other way uh, it's had an effect on me is you know, I think growing up in an environment where I didn't always have ready sources of information, my parents weren't you know, passing books along to me, that may have actually made me more kind of stubbornly cling to my curiosities. And New York City, of course, was the perfect place to do that. There's the part of a child's journey where you are learning the literal language, right? And there's the words and the phrases and the idioms. And there's also sort of a second language, which is how society works. And I'm wondering, given the circumscribed world that, you're, that you were coming from, just learning about society and having to push yourself beyond the curiosities of your parents and just, this is how the game is played. This is the way the world is. You have to discover that on your own, it sounds like. And how... How did you go about doing that? And do you remember things sort of opening your eyes and you thinking to yourself, ah, this this is the way it's played. This is what this is all about. Yeah, Kevin, I actually really remember that moment being for me quite late. I remember it being in either eighth, must have been eighth grade, but I had never slept over at a friend's house my whole childhood until eighth grade when my really close friend Dan invited me to sleep over and uh, he lived with his parents and brother in Morningside Heights um, in an old uh, pre-war co-op right near Columbia University. And uh, I just remember being, uh, um, just my mouth was agape at their apartment full of books. Books mm -hmm. jammed in every corner, you know, nice art on the walls, uh, a proper, you know, plating for dinner with the fork on the left and the knife on the right. I, I honestly just hadn't grown up with that in that kind of environment. And I, I didn't think, uh, I didn't feel any sense of resentment. I felt actually very happy to be welcomed in their home. Um, but I did feel a sense of kind of refinement and, um, um, you know, love of learning and intellect that sometimes I felt, you know, was absent in my home environment. Looking, you know, with the passage of many, many years and even decades, you know, I don't... Um, there were probably also ways in which I then looked at, at my own, you know, working class home as being 
somehow lacking. And it's important for me, you know, not to try to feel that way. Obviously, we all have, you know, opportunities and privileges and circumstances uh, that oftentimes can't be helped. But I do remember kind of just being introduced to this world that was just frankly more Manhattan, more erudite. And would you have your friends come over to your house? It's so funny that you say that. We almost always met up in Manhattan. And I remember at one point in that era before cell phones and before Google and before texting, I guess we'd have to call each other at home and make plans. I was on the phone all the time. But I remember that we would, you know, even when there was a posse of us from Queens, we would still meet up in Manhattan. I remember one time, you know, finding myself on a Saturday or something with maybe four or five friends from Queens. And I was like, we, we all live in Queens. Why are we in Manhattan right now? <laughs> we'll have Manhattan, the Bronx and Staten Island too. It's lovely going through the zoo. You described seventh grade being sort of unhappy and, and difficult. By the time you get to the high, your senior year, you're co-class president of your, cla- uh, of your class and uh, along with your future Harvard classmate and then co- Times colleague, Jennifer Aitley, uh, who was from the Upper West Side, um, you guys take over the, the Observer, which is the sort of second indie newspaper at the school and is the rival to the other newspaper, which is What's What? And I wanted to ask you about the takeover of that newspaper and sort of what led to that. So our school had and still has, I'm, I'm very happy to report, really two student newspapers, uh, a more traditional one that's the so-called official uh, student paper, What's What, founded in 1922, and, uh, and then a more uh, kind of indie alternative uh, student newspaper called The Observer, which was founded in 1981. So, mm. you know, when I was at Hunter, this was probably only a dozen years uh, into The Observer's existence. And in hindsight, you know, almost 30 years later, I'm really glad it's, it's passed the test of time and yeah. I guess we'll soon have its 40th birthday. But, um, you know, I hadn't, uh, I had tried to be involved in what's what and didn't, was having a very good experience there, felt a little bit left out or that it was a little bit clubby. And so I ended up getting a, a role as the business manager of uh, The Observer selling advertisements. And I really had to go up and down the streets on the Upper East Side and East Harlem trying to get local businesses to advertise in our student newspaper. How did that go? Well, it was not easy. I'm not a natural salesman. Uh, uh, but it did force me to go out and talk to a lot of different people and try to make the case, which I actually think is very, very useful. I, I'm not a very good, uh, uh, I'm not good at business, I'm not, not good at commerce, but it was really the one time in my life where I had to make sales pitches regularly. And, uh, and then that led to, one thing led to another. My fellow Americans, I end tonight where it all began for me. I still believe in a place called hope. God bless you, and God bless America. What's interesting is that in 92, right, which is around the same time, you went to the Democratic National Convention in New York for the Children's Express newspaper, which is a kind of an interesting children's news agency at that time. And Bill Clinton is going to be the, the nominee and ultimately the president. You're there. So it's around the same time. And I'm getting, I'm kind of picturing you going up and down the street asking for ads uh, from local businesses. But now you're also at the DNC asking for people to talk to you and you're like a 14, 15 year old kid. 
how did you get people to take you seriously, Sewell? Oh, I was learning a lot in those years. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't find things out unless you ask, and that's number one. But yeah, I guess it was a, a time when I was a little bit shameless about you know asking for information, asking people to advertise, rebooting my student newspaper with, with Jenny. You know, We took it from an eight and a half by 11 kind of photocopied uh, or mimeographed uh, uh, kind of pamphlet really to uh, kind of New York Times size. Was there a legitimate rivalry with the other paper, the What's What? Oh, but in hindsight, I don't think it was all that serious. I mean... Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, at the time, like, was it sort of a, whoa, what are these guys doing? They're like, we're, we're, the, we're the established, venerable, kind of great lady of Hunter, <laughs> Hunter College. And these upstarts, like this, these village voice types are, you know, on our heels here. I guess somewhat, but but the truth be told, you know, our approach to the Observer was itself very sober and establishment. We probably, <laughs> we probably would have achieved better results had we, you know, aimed for a more populist and uh, uh, irreverent tone. But uh-huh. uh, uh, it was it was very it was very earnest, I think. But it was very serious and it was very well done. And we did try to tackle some issues that were difficult. I remember, in particular, editing a series of articles, commissioning a series of articles about the workers in our school, people mm. who were not faculty or, or administrative staff, but really kept the, the building running. The security staff, the the cleaning staff, the the lab technicians, and really trying to like understand their lives. And uh, you came from that world. You were probably the only person that would have wanted to shine that light at that time. You, you, you had the perspective to do it. Well, that's, that's very good. That's, you noticed. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, 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 I don't know if I made that connection at the time, but that, that's very perceptive. You also mentioned that you, you were gay, and were you closeted at the time in high school? or in junior? Yeah, I was mostly closeted. I didn't, um, I didn't really have relationships with girls, but I also didn't really pretend to be straight. I guess I was a little bit um, kind of just asexual. Mm-hmm. really through high school. In those two ways, both your work, the working class background you described and your sexuality, did you feel like you were observing, taking things in, making friends, doing your work, but not opening your book up, not saying, here I am? Yeah, I guess I did feel a little bit like an outsider, and that may have, that may have probably influenced my interest in journalism, where, you know, curiosity is rewarded as, as well as nosiness. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, just kind of documenting what's going on, but not, not necessarily putting yourself at the center of the story. Gay Talese in his classic, uh, history of the New York times, the kingdom and the power said that most journalists are restless wires. Is that fair? Um, yeah, I think a lot of journalists are restless wires. That's a really, really good term. You know, journalism really rewards those who have kind of a dogged curiosity and just, you know, are gnawing at that bone of, of truth and won't, won't give up. I believe I shall confer. He's teasing them a little bit. (laughs) On each and every last one of you, the first degree in arts or in science, and admit you to the fellowship of educated persons. Cheers, confetti. You wrote this piece in our alumni magazine shortly after we graduated, and you described how six hours after commencement day at Harvard, this is June of 1998, you are back in the taxi with your mom and your dad 
driving home from Cambridge to New York City. And you sort of drew this contrast between the New York that you were going home to and the world you were going home to, which is in Queens, you just described, and the New York that our classmates were going to with their consulting jobs, hedge fund jobs, whatever it was. Uh, and there's you going home in the, in the cab. And I've, I wanted to just sit for a second because that summer is an odd one for a lot of people. But I wanted to ask you about going home and that crossroads in your life, kind of what you were thinking. Well, Kevin, I'm really struck by this question. I haven't reread that piece, and it was uh, 22 years ago. I guess, first of all, it was very, very nice for my dad to drive his cab up to Cambridge to pick me up. That was very sweet. <laughs> I remember by that point, he had one of those uh, yellow cab um, SUVs or minivans or something with the... It was a little bit more sophisticated than what than the uh, than the uh, than the Chevy, I think that that you know he had driven uh-huh. when I was younger. Um, you know, it was it was very intense. I mean, Harvard is a very immersive, very totalizing experience, and there's so much prestige and uh, um, um, you know intellect and and you know worldliness associated with it. And it really felt like it was a transition point. Uh, and really, it ended up being my my last summer at home. Of course, I I, I hadn't even interned in New York City any of the previous three summers. So it was really my first um, summer at home since 1994, I guess, and really my last summer at home because, I, of course, I you know then started my, uh, after grad school, my career. Um, so it was, a, it was a very poignant time. I ended up doing mm. a, an internship at the Legal Aid Society of New York uh, right. in their Juvenile Rights Division, which was very, very interesting. And, um, you know, I remember just kind of trying to unpack that summer of, of, you know, these four years at Harvard and what they had meant and then, you know, what lay ahead. I remember it being a pretty introspective summer. I also remember, you know, I didn't really, we didn't really go on any big graduation trip or anything, but my parents really wanted to visit Las Vegas for whatever reason. So we <laughs> went uh, that summer, and uh, we also toured the Hoover Dam and the Grand Canyon. Uh, I did not like the strip very much. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you mentioned also your parents were divorced shortly after. So I'm guessing that's also, did it feel like the end of something too, in a yeah, way? it did. That's it. Yeah, my parents split that that coming winter. So, yeah, there was a lot of change in my life going on at that time. City Room is a collaborative effort by reporters and editors at the New York Times. It's intended to enhance and build on and supplement the news articles in our traditional print edition, while at the same time giving readers a much greater chance to interact with each other, with newsmakers, and with journalists. Eventually, as I mentioned, went to Oxford, got the Marshall. Uh, you come come back, you work at the Washington Post, and by 2004, um, you're at the New York Times, which is your hometown paper, right? It's the, it's, the, it's the Times. And I was amazed by 2006, you're only 28 years old, uh, you have somehow accumulated 422 bylines in a single year, which sounds like an incredible fee. And there was a New York Observer uh, article about you called Byline Beast of New York. And I was wondering, How'd that make you feel? Uh, not exactly well. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, don't, uh, I don't like being at the center of attention. I still don't. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's nice to be recognized for one's productivity, but it, it's not really the most important thing at all. Um, you know, I'm not sure many of the stories were all that consequential, but, uh, but it was a time that was very, very busy, actually, in New York and in the transit beat, which I did enjoy covering a lot. I also find, I, I find something so endearing about your story, too, because I relate to so many things about you, including some of the times when your eagerness and your insatiable desire to know things was misinterpreted. So, like, there, there is that observer story where, like, some guy saying, this guy pitched me a story at the urinal. It's the only time I've been pitched a story at a urinal. Or, like... You showed up at the funeral of Abe Rosenthal, you know, and people are like, oh, that's so weird. He was, he's the executive editor of the Times long before <laughs> you were there. But I can sort of put myself in your shoes thinking those are things I would do. 
you know, because you just want to experience things. <laughs> you get older and you realize you need to curb some of your enthusiasms. And also you're, you're writing, your name's appearing in the paper and then your parents, it's, it's their hometown paper too, in a way. What, what was, what was the reaction and what was the relationship to your words? Not, not very much, I'm afraid. you know, my parents, I, I, occasionally, I think I showed them front page stories that I'd worked on, but you know, they really, uh, they consume a lot of their news really through Chinese language media. Mm-hmm. So they've never really scrutinized, you know, what I work on, which in some ways is a little bit of a blessing. I don't, um, you know, my work, my work sphere is not the same as my, my, my kind of home sphere. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, so many kids, Sewell, as they get older, a lot of their drive is just about placating, impressing family or their parents. And, and your incentives, your your fulfillment has to come from a different place that you've made. You've made a living with words and it's not something that they, they necessarily are sharing. Yeah, I don't I feel I guess I feel very fortunate in that respect. Um, I don't feel I'm trying to like live up to someone else's, you know, standard, mm-hmm. just my own. Uh, maybe there's something very New York about that, too. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, I think New York is a city of kind of strivers, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think I think sometimes the journey from Queens to, you know, Manhattan feels as great as the distance people might feel moving from, you know, rural Kansas to Manhattan. Um, it's part of the energy of New York, but sometimes it can be very aggravating and irritating as well. I think the people who most often claim ownership of New York are those who, you know, have arrived to achieve and of, of course, that striving and achievement are a big part of what gives New York its energy and dynamism. But as E.B. White wrote, you know, there are also a lot of other New Yorks, including the New York mm-hmm. that serves that first New York, <laughs> yes. which I probably feel uh, uh, most affiliated with. Uh, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I do feel that, you know, there are a lot of journeys to be had even within New York City, you know, journeys of class and generation. There's nothing quite like Texas on Saturday night Nothing can compare to it no matter how you try A bottle never closes, New York City's got bright lights But it's nothing, nothing quite, quite like Texas on a Saturday night But it's nothing quite like Texas on a Saturday night Sewell just moved to Austin, Texas to become the editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune. It's a big job. And before that, he was the editorial page editor of the Los Angeles Times. Now, he brings his passion for the local wherever he goes. At the same time, I wondered, what does he miss about his old hometown? Well, it's not the obvious stuff, like the bagels and the coffee. I mean, I think uh-huh. that's so superficial in the end. Um, I think New York is such a walkable city, and I miss those kind of serendipitous um, uh, weekend trips or day trips you know, where you're just going to a neighborhood you've ever, never been to before. Like, I long to go to Parkchester. Um, yes. I, I don't know anything about New Dorp. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you, know, I, what, you know, what is Ozone Park like? I, I mean, I have dim, I have, a, I have a general sense of what these neighborhoods are like, but really walking through them, looking at the pattern of the, the churches and the settlement, it, it's just an endless source of discovery, and I really, really miss that about New York. And from, and from that childhood that you had, Sewell, Sewell What What did did you you most want want to bring with you into adulthood, and what did you most want to leave behind? Oh my gosh, these are huge questions. What did I most want to uh, bring with me into adulthood? A a sense of curiosity, a sense of openness, a sense of earnestness, um, trying to be curious about the world, open. I think New York teaches you, if anything else, to be tolerant of of difference. Um, What do I want to leave behind? Actually, as I get older, I feel... I feel that the world is so complex and that, you know, I, I, I very much resist a kind of New York chauvinism. I love New York so deeply, but I think sometimes it can be 
at a time of especially rising inequality can be very, very troubling if people who are lucky enough to, you know, have, you know, have had good lives in places like New York or Los Angeles, then uh, uh, don't, you know, take the time to really consider and understand the many communities that don't feel uh, yeah. the, the level of prosperity or privilege that many urban areas have felt. Now, of course, there's tremendous inequality within New York City as well. And so, you know, uh, what I'd like to leave behind is probably a sense of innocence about New York. You know, it's, com it's complicated like every place else. I end every single interview the same way, Sewell, which is with Walt Whitman, the iconic New Yorker, my favorite poet. And in Song of Myself, he sort of has these startling words that, that kind of lead me to a question. So let me read you the words and then ask you the question. Walt says, I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. And let's picture a day 50 years, 100 years, 200 years from now where someone discovers this gentleman named Sul Chan through his bylines or headlines or maybe it's the Observer or the Times or the City Room, whatever it may be. And they want to know you and they want to know more about your story. And who, who did this guy, who was this guy? Where did he come from? And they want to commune with you. And they want to go to a place in New York where they can most feel your spirit. And I was going to ask you, where should they, where should we look for you in your hometown? That is a very, very, very heavy question. Um, I, you know, I am going to name the, the, a library, but, but not the New York Public Library, which is too obvious. I'm going to name the Queen Central Library at 8911 Merrick Boulevard in Jamaica, Queens because it's an incredible research institution, but also an incredible community serving institution. And it really stands for like the best values of New York. And you can picture yourself there as a boy. Oh yeah. And you can see yourself. For sure, yeah. yeah. There's a whole section on Queens and Long Island history that I remember as well. I haven't been back there in many years, but I'd like to go. Well, now I wanna go look for you there. Sul Chan, thank you so much for taking me to your hometown. Thank you, Kevin Burke. Thank you for listening to Your Hometown where the local is the epic. This is a Kevin Burke production. Visit yourhometown.org to subscribe to the podcast and our various social media channels. And wherever you're listening, please drop us a review. Every star helps. For information on live events that we do around the show, visit our New York City series page on the Museum of the City of New York's website at mcny.org slash yourhometown hyphen podcast. Now let me thank the team that works with me on Your Hometown, beginning with our executive producer, Robert Krowich, our editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter, our composer and performer, Sterling Steffen, and our researchers, Shaquille Khan and Jamaris Perez. I also want to thank Tunshere Longay, Nick Gregg, and Charlotte Yu for the vivid illustrations that have given our show another dimension. Our social media manager is Michaela Watkins, and our website and branding design is by Tama Creative. A special thanks to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York, our elite funder, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and all our financial supporters for their commitment to this series. It's because of them that we're able to bring this series to you. Thanks so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere.